We're going to be in Romans chapter 13 this morning as we continue our study of the book of Romans. In uh, 2006, I invited my 85-year-old grandfather to join me for an Aggie game here in College Station. We were playing the Oklahoma Sooners, and uh, I invited him to join me because my grandfather was a lifelong Oklahoma fan. He went to OU, loved the Sooners, so I thought it would be a great opportunity just to share uh, this little football rivalry together with him. So he came to the game, and, and of course, we sat uh, with, with my people, right? We sat with the Aggies. And uh, my grandfather, being the bold person that he was, he was dressed in Oklahoma red and white the whole time. And so here he was, this, this little dot of red in a sea of maroon. And, uh, you know, what's interesting is you might think that that would, that would produce hostility and anger in our section as people realized there was like a, like a, a traitor or something. In their midst, but but in reality, my grandfather was so winsome and so uh, kind to the people around us that by the end of the game, uh, he had actually made friends with almost everybody in the section. So that so that you know, when A and M scored, he'd be like, "Yeah, that was great, good job." And when when OU scored, people pat him on the back, and they were good naturedly ribbing each other around in our section. And, and I thought, man, that that was really really cool. The only uncool part about it was that the Aggies lost the game by a single point. But, but even, even within that, my grandfather was able to look at everybody and go, you know, that's okay. You guys, will, you guys will probably get us next year. Spoiler alert, we didn't the next year or the next year or the next year. But, but it was a great time with him because he was able to boldly represent his own team while being winsome and kind to those of the other team. And I don't know, maybe if he'd been given a little bit more time, maybe he could have convinced some of those around him of the merits of of OU, right? Now, maybe that's a little too far. But he was able to winsomely represent his team while living in a sea of what you might think would be hostility. Now, I share that because as believers in Jesus Christ, we often feel like we are living in the midst of a sea of hostility. We're this one little dot, a Christ follower in a world that increasingly around us does not acknowledge or believe in Jesus. So we often can feel alone, right? We can often feel isolated, like I'm just this one person. How do I live well? How do I represent Jesus well? boldly but also winsomely in a world that doesn't acknowledge him, that doesn't honor him, that doesn't believe in him. This is a dilemma, but it's a dilemma that others have faced before us. We are far from the first Christians to face this challenge of honoring Jesus in a world that doesn't honor him. And in fact, the world into which Paul wrote the book of Romans that we've been looking at over the the course of the last year, uh, this was a world in which uh, these new Gentile Christians, they were surrounded by people who didn't believe in Jesus. They were living in a culture filled with mythical gods, filled with sexual immorality and drunkenness and violence and paganism and all manner of evil, right? So they had to figure out, how do I follow God in the midst of this world? They were under a governmental system that was pagan at best and at worst was hostile to the truth of the gospel. This was how they had to live. They took it for granted in the first century that as Christians, 
they would be living like aliens and strangers in a hostile culture. And so, so Paul, having dealt in the first part of the book with how we can know that we are made right with God, now he deals with once you've been made right with God through Jesus Christ, how do you live in the meanwhile until Jesus returns, right? So, so Romans chapter one through eight, you remember was the essence of it is you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? So the gospel is this good news that you can be made right with God through Jesus Christ alone. When you're made right with God, now you have become a part of a new kingdom, a new citizenry composed of Jews and Gentiles from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. A new kingdom under the authority of Jesus Christ awaiting the day when all of the nations of the world will bow and submit to Jesus Christ. When the kingdom of Jesus becomes and overcomes the kingdoms of this world. So that's what we wait for. But the question of Romans 12 through 16 now is how do we live in the meanwhile as citizens of that kingdom while we're still living in this one? If you were with us last week in Romans 12, Paul talked about how does this affect how we treat one another in the church? We wanna utilize our gifts in order to serve and build up the body so that all are equipped to follow Jesus and to represent Jesus. Toward the end of Romans 12, Paul rounds the corner to say now that this is how we're gonna live within the church, how do we live outside the church? How do we honor Jesus in a world that doesn't honor him? The reality is that the culture in which we live, especially here in the United States of America, is becoming less and less Christian with every passing year. Let me show you, let me show you what I mean. Let me show you a couple of graphs. This is from Pew Research Group. So. I don't know how well you can see that from where you are, but if you go back to 1972 in the United States, 90% of Americans, when asked if they were Christians, would say yes. 90%. Now think about that. Now, whether or not uh, they all had believed in Jesus and, and had trusted him for eternal life, they probably hadn't, but 90% would have said, at least kind of nominally, culturally, I'm a Christian. It was the essence of our culture. 2020, that number has dropped to 64%. Their projection is by 2070, that number will drop anywhere from 35 to, to roughly 50%. So that by 2070, and, and some of you are like, I won't be around then, right? But your kids, your grandkids probably will. They will be growing up in a world that is increasingly non-Christian, where within the next 40 years, Christianity in this country will become a minority religion. We talked about this in Romans 11, how God works at different times in history through different nations, right? And so, so the gospel will move in one nation for a period of time and then moves to another nation for a period of time. What we're seeing is that in the United States of America, it seems like at least cultural Christianity is waning. And what's happening is this rise, this is the opposite graph, the rise of what are called the nuns. You go back again to 1972, only 5% of Americans when asked what their faith was would say nothing. Now, 2020, 30%. They're estimating by 2070, it'll be almost half of our country that will say nothing in particular. Now, why do I share all that? Not to freak you out, even though it might. 
but simply to present a reality that increasingly we are living in a world that is going to be similar for different reasons, but similar to the world in which the first Christians lived, where they're surrounded by a culture that does not acknowledge or even honor or respect the name of Jesus. Right, and so what do we do about that? Well, uh, you're like, well, maybe, maybe I can fix this if I rage on Twitter. Right, or maybe I can fix this if I vote for the, the right person. If only we could get the right person in the White House, that would fix this. Maybe I could fix this somehow by convincing other people to believe like, like we believe. The reality is that no one of us is gonna be able to reverse this trend, and even probably as a group, we're not gonna be able to reverse this trend. And so the question then is, if we're living in a nation that is increasingly hostile to the name of Jesus, how do we live? That's what Romans 13 addresses. Here's where Romans 13 is gonna take us this morning. The gospel is good news because it empowers us to honor Jesus in our daily lives as we live in a world that does not honor him. So in other words, the question that Romans 13 answers, how can you and I honor Jesus in a world that doesn't honor him. As we live as citizens and as neighbors, as individuals, how do we honor Jesus and live well in a world that doesn't honor him? Knowing that we are citizens of a kingdom that is yet to arrive fully. We belong to Jesus' kingdom, but we live still in an earthly kingdom. How do we honor Jesus in a world that doesn't? That's the question of Romans 13. So let me begin uh, Romans 13. I'm gonna start in verse one. Follow with me. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, that is the government, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. So in answer to this question, how do we honor Jesus in a world that doesn't? Paul begins right off the bat with the most controversial one. He says, submit to the government. Now you're like, wait a second. Hold on. Submit to the government, right? I was thinking you would say like pray or, you know, go baptize some of my friends or something like that. Like submit to the government is not the, the answer that I was hoping for, expecting, or wanting, right? Because there's something within all of us that chafes against the government. I mean, even if you are a law-abiding citizen for the most part, I'm going to guess that when tax season arrives or when you see that amount come out of your paycheck, something in you chafes, right? Uh, I'm gonna guess that when you see the speed limit sometimes, you're like, why, right? Over here on Greens Prairie 
road. Y'all are already laughing. You know where I'm going. They've been working on this road for, I don't know, like since I was a child, like a long time, okay? They finally have it widened, right? They've got a nice four-lane road, two beautiful lanes in, in either direction. Often the traffic really isn't, isn't all that bad, and, and, and they've got even some of the traffic lights installed. They seem to be working intermittently, and yet the speed limit signs still say 30, and I'm telling you, I, I take that road a lot. It goes from my house down this direction. And every time I'm like, this road screams 50. It just like everything about this road. So I find myself, I'm like, ah, like every single time. It is a physical effort to keep my car within the speed limit. And I don't always succeed. Now, here's what's interesting. I, I actually calculated this week. How much time could I save if I drove 50 instead of 30? And I realized on each trip, you know how much time I would save? One minute. But I'm telling you, that is the longest one minute of my life. Why is that? It's not about the one minute. It's not about the speed. It's about me thinking the speed limit is stupid on that road. Because there's something in us that chafes against authority, isn't there? There's something in us that just wants to say, I know better than the people who are in charge. Paul recognizes that. And he says, what I want you to understand, if you want to live as a faithful citizen of Jesus' kingdom, you have to honor the earthly authorities of the kingdom you're living in now. And and he gives us a, a couple of reasons for that. He says, first of all, understand that your response to earthly authority is a reflection of your response to the authority of God. Because there is no authority, he says, that has not been put in place by God. Now, I realize that raises questions. Because you're like, well, some some earthly authorities are quite frankly corrupt or greedy or immoral. So are you saying that whatever they do is okay? That's not what he's saying. Right? Instead, the implication is that God, as we've seen, God raises up kings and presidents and rulers and he casts them down. God is the one who judges them and determines the course of history. So if a leader is in place, that leader, at least for the moment, is there because God has raised them up and allowed them to be in place. So that my response to earthly authority, especially governmental authority, almost always, I'm going to say almost always, should be submission. There are very few cases in which the the scripture would urge what's called civil disobedience. There are some, but they are few. One of the biggies, of course, is if the government asks us in some way to violate the commands of the scripture. And we see this a a number of times. So you think about Daniel, right? He's commanded not not to pray. Not to pray publicly. And he goes, no, I can't, I can't do that. And so uh, he disobeys. Uh, His friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're commanded to worship a statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And they go, no, 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 I can't do that. And so they get tossed into the fiery furnace. The Hebrew midwives, at the beginning of Exodus, they are commanded to slaughter these infant children. They disobey that command because it violates the commands of God, right? So uh, you also see this in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, Peter and John were arrested and commanded not to share the gospel. And here's what happened. They get summoned by the religious leaders and governmental leaders of the 
Jewish people, and it says, when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, right? Stop talking about Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. In other words, they say there is a time to disobey when the government asks me to violate the commands of God. Now, I recognize people debate over when, when that is, right? There's some, there's some gray areas in there because people might interpret the scripture differently at different eras of history. But fundamentally, we are commanded to submit unless submission directly conflicts with obedience to God because God has put authority in place. Now, the great thing is this. We happen to live in a particular form of government that Paul did not live in and that his readers did not live in. We live in a democratic republic, right? So part of submitting to the government can actually also be that we have the the right to try to speak about or vote for policies and principles and leaders that align with the character of Jesus, right? We have been given that right by our government. So it's not unsubmissive to to invest in that or engage in that process. And to to a greater degree or a lesser degree, some of us in this room might have been called to that, all the way from voting, all the way up to running for office, to being engaged politically in a particular issue, right? So it may be that, that that's part of how you and I can walk well and even submit to the government in a pagan world. Right, But when push comes to shove, almost all the time, if there's a law on the books, almost all the time, Paul would say, obey that law unless obedience to that law violates your ability to obey Jesus. He says, because authority has been put in place by God. And here's the other thing he's gonna say is that ultimately, ideally, the reason we have a government is because a government exists, he says, to punish wrongdoers. Right, So if someone steals from you, we're glad that we have police and courts and all of that to enforce justice, right? They enforce justice ideally. Again, not perfectly, not always, because they are composed of human beings. But, but Paul says every society needs the order of a government and the government has been put in place by God. That doesn't give them the right to do whatever they please because God will judge, but it does call us to live in an attitude of subjection and submission. And so he says one illustration of this is he says, this is why you pay taxes. And y'all are like, okay, now, now you're stepping on toes, right? This is why you pay the taxes. Right, we pay taxes because the taxes allow the government, ideally, to live out its purpose, to enforce justice, to do what is right for the community. And, and here's the thing, it's not only Paul that said it, it's actually Jesus who said it. Jesus, said, uh, Jesus is approached, and they say, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. So so they're trying to trick Jesus here because if he says, hey, obey and pay the tax, he knows that the Jewish people who felt oppressed by the Roman taxes are not gonna like that. But if he says, don't pay the tax, they know 
that Jesus is going to get in trouble with the Roman government, right? So they feel like they've got him pinned. No matter what he says is the wrong answer. So he says, hey, bring me a coin. So they bring him a coin. He said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this on the coin? They said to him, Caesar's, right? The emperor's picture is on the coin. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed and leaving him, they went away. Jesus had a way of answering so well that his enemies had no response. And in fact, after a couple more of these types of instances, it says, then they stopped asking Jesus any more questions. Because here's what Jesus does. This is a master stroke. He goes, I want you to look at the coin. Who printed it? Who does it belong to? Where did it come from? Well, it came from the Romans. He goes, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. What, what's Caesar's? The, the, the money. What's really ultimately the worst that the government could do? They could, I guess, take your money. They could take your physical freedom, maybe your, your physical life. But he goes, look, it's, it's ultimately, it's just money. It's just money. It may not feel like it when you pay your taxes, but it's just money. He goes, render to God the things that are God's. What belongs to God? Your heart, your love, your affections, your energy, your time. You belong to God. So he says, look, don't fret about the money. It's just a way of trading in an earthly kingdom, in an earthly system. You can give the money and still trust God with your life and your heart and how he'll provide for you. And in doing so, here's what Paul says, when we submit to the government, even on April 15th, we demonstrate that we are people of peace who follow a savior and a king who came to bring peace to the entire world, that we can live peaceably. We're not just rebels for the sake of being rebels. We don't just push back for the sake of pushing back to to assert our own rights and autonomy, but instead we worship God. And wherever it is possible, We submit to the earthly authorities as a reflection of our submission to God, and that gives a good testimony to the world around us. Paul understood that to constantly chafe against earthly authorities would reflect that we are people who are rebellious, also against God and God's plan. He says, no, submit to the government. In a world that doesn't honor Jesus, be people of peace, be people of submission. That leaves a testimony. So he's going to say, first, how do you honor Jesus in a world that doesn't? Well, you submit to the government. Secondly, he's going to say, I want you to love your neighbors. So look at verses 8 through 10. He says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So he says, all right, here's what I want you to do. First of all, in order to honor Jesus in a world that doesn't, I want you to submit upward, and then I want you to love outward. All right, so in the way that you respond to authorities upward, your heart should be one of submission in the way that you respond to your neighbors who don't know Jesus outward, your heart should be one of love. And I, and I, I love how Paul makes this transition, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a great preacher move. He goes from owing taxes to owing love. And he says, I don't want you to owe taxes 
I want you to owe love. Owe nothing to anyone except to love. Right, and, and here's what he's getting at, is this idea. Remember, we are men and women who have been saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have been brought into his kingdom fully by his grace. God is a generous giver, and and Jesus Christ is the greatest demonstration of that generosity and love toward people who don't deserve it. And so he says, you now owe love to your neighbor. Why do you owe love to your neighbor? Not because your neighbor deserves it, but instead because God lavished his love on you when you didn't deserve it. So you cannot ever pay him back. It's an infinite debt you can never pay back. And so Paul says, what I want you to do instead is pay it forward because God has given you his love in Jesus Christ. You now owe love to your neighbor. And especially in this context, he's talking about neighbors who don't yet know Jesus, that our posture should not be one of hostility toward our neighbor any more than our posture toward the government should be one of rebellion. But our posture toward our neighbor should first and foremost be love. John says it this way, 1 John chapter 4, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, right? Because God loved us, we have an obligation, an oughtness, Paul says, to love one another, right? This is the idea, again, not of paying it back, but we pay it forward so that others around us can experience through us the generosity and the love of God. Uh, I ran across an article this week as I was thinking about this concept. This is from about five or six years ago from Titusville, Florida. I don't know what part of Florida that's in, but the story centers on a group of uh, prom goers, seniors in high school, who were on their way to prom, a group of young ladies. They were sitting at a table together, and some older women came up while they were at this table eating before prom, and they were all dressed up. And these older ladies came up, and they complimented their dresses, told them how beautiful they looked as they were headed to prom, and then they spontaneously paid for their, their meal, for this, this, these girls' meal, right? So a nice gesture, but here's what happened is something about that gesture touched their hearts. And one of them, her name is Savannah. She says, we were so surprised, right, that they would pay for the meal. Instantly, we were like, we have to do something. And so it sparked in their hearts this desire that we've got to do something. They couldn't pay the ladies back because they didn't know where they were. They didn't know who they were. And so what they decided to do, they, they just went to Dunkin' Donuts one morning. And they bought a bunch of donuts and coffee. And then they went through the city looking for other people who were in need that they could give donuts and coffee to. Not to pay these ladies back, but to pay it forward as an expression of the love that had been extended to them. And at the end of the article, they say, we want to live the rest of our lives this way. Wherever we go, we want to extend that kind of kindness that's been extended to us. You see what the article gets at is that there was this act of generosity, this act of love toward them, not because of anything that they did, but just out of grace. And they said, because of that, we want to extend generosity and grace, not just to one other person, but to everybody we encounter. That generosity so impacted their hearts that it changed their lives. How much more should the generosity of God in Jesus Christ 
motivate us to love our neighbors, to love our neighbors. Now, now the question that often comes up and it's, it's answered in the question is, well, who is my neighbor, right? Because I can't meet every need in the world. So, so what needs do I meet? I mean, the world is filled with needs. And you remember the story of, of the good Samaritan in the gospel of Luke. Somebody asks Jesus that question when he says, hey, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Going back to the law, some, some uh, lawyer, right? He says, but who is my neighbor, right? Very classic lawyer question. I'm sorry if you are a lawyer in the room. Right? But he goes, look, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story. You remember the good Samaritan? This man gets beaten and robbed and he's lying on the side of the road and a, a, a Levite passes by him and a priest passes by him. But the Samaritan stops and takes care of him and bundles up his wounds and pays for a night in a hotel until he is better. And Jesus says, the question is not, who is my neighbor, but am I a neighbor to those I encounter? The implied answer really to who is my neighbor is your neighbor is anybody in your path, anybody you encounter who has a need that you can meet. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, we're called to love our neighbors. So it may be that there's a family in your neighborhood or at your workplace or somewhere around you that is struggling financially and you have some resources with which you can bless those folks. That is extending love to your neighbor, free of condition, free of charge, because you care for them. Or maybe you know a young couple in your workplace or in your neighborhood or around you that has a lot of little kids and they're struggling for time and maybe their marriage is struggling as a result and you may not have money, but you've got time. And so because you know them, you say, I can babysit your kids for a night, maybe a night a week, so that you can invest time together and get a break. Maybe it simply is that what you have is the ability to pay attention to somebody who needs a listening ear. And so instead of rushing through your day when somebody is struggling or facing challenges or heartache, you pause and you listen. I would actually argue that one of the scarcest resources in our society today is attention, full attention. To sit and listen, to look someone in the eye, to care, to pray, simply to tell them that you love them. Even if you can't do anything else, it's a priceless commodity. And it demonstrates the love of God in Jesus Christ. Because when we we're lost and isolated and desperate. God saw us and he intervened and he showed us the love of God in Jesus Christ. So Paul says, one of the greatest ways that we can honor Jesus in a world that doesn't honor him is to love our neighbor, right? So, so we submit to the government upward. We love our neighbors as we look outward, right? And then we look inward. And we live righteous lives. We live holy lives. Look at verses 11 through 14. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we 
believed. Let me just quickly mention, he's not saying that you're, you're somehow earning your salvation or getting more of eternal life. What he is saying is that, that he's talking about the day Jesus will return. That final salvation is closer today than it was yesterday. It'll be closer tomorrow than it was the day before. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but we know that he's coming back at any time. Every day, every moment, it gets closer. Salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the lust in regard for the flesh in regard to its lusts, all right? So, so he begins and he says, all right, I want you to think about the fact that every day is getting closer to the return of Jesus. Your time is getting short. And the reason he points that out is because the day is coming, and we'll see this in Romans 14, actually, where it says, all of us will stand before the judgment seat of God. Our lives will be evaluated. Now remember, if you believed in Jesus Christ, that judgment will not send you to hell. But even for the believer, there will be a moment where our life will be evaluated. Have you lived consistently with the character of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ? And will you hear from Jesus on that day? Well done, good and faithful servant. Will will your life receive a positive evaluation from your Savior, because you have said, I'm all in on Jesus with my life, with my heart, with my relationships, with my body. And on that day, I don't think anything else will matter to us other than commendation from Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, I want you to look ahead to that day. Salvation is coming close. We're only going to have to live in a world hostile to Jesus for a finite period of time. And so because you know that that day is coming, that ought to affect how you think about your life today. So several years ago, one weekend, my wife, Shannon, went on like a women's retreat or something along those lines. And the kids were, this was when the kids were small, right? And so she left on a Friday. I knew she was coming back on Sunday afternoon. I will make a confession that her standards of tidiness are higher than mine. And so uh, for that weekend, I thought, you know, I will uh, care for the mess when the time is closer, when I know that she's almost here, right? So Friday night, we just kind of did what we did. Saturday, we just kind of did what we did. Uh, all of a sudden, Sunday, I looked around and I thought, oh no, right? Uh, we need to figure this out, right? Because if she returns and it's like this, my weekend will not be positively evaluated. And I want it to be, right? And so, so we, we cleaned it up, you know, but, but here's the thing. Here's what, here's what Paul is saying here is that uh, we don't know when Jesus is coming. We don't know when the time is. And so in the meanwhile, what do we do? Well, we don't be like, hey, I'm just gonna wait. I'm gonna wait until it seems closer. I'm gonna wait until I'm older to honor Jesus with my life, with my words, with my body, right? I'm gonna have fun today and just do whatever I want and then I'll get holy later. And he says, no, 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 you you gotta understand, salvation is getting nearer every day. The day of that evaluation is getting nearer and nearer Every day, you don't know when it's coming. And so he says, in light of that, as you live in a world that is hostile to the gospel, live in holiness because your holiness 
demonstrates you are set apart for the purposes and the kingdom of God. And so he says, I want you to avoid the sins of your age. And notice how closely the sins of their age mirror the sins of ours. Not in carousing, that's just kind of wasteful partying and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, not constant arguments about minor issues, not sexual immorality, where I use my body in ways that are opposed to the character of God, right? Not drunkenness and dissipation, where I use substances just to numb whatever pain I'm feeling and pass the day away. He says, no, 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 I want you to daily put on Jesus Christ, remember what is coming, that he is returning, and make no provision for the flesh as you invest your life in his kingdom. So we submit again to the government upward, we love our neighbors outward, and then we look inward and live righteously. This is how we honor Jesus in a world that doesn't. And what I love is is all of this is accessible to all of us. It doesn't require a lot of special training. It doesn't require us to get upset or angsty about the political events of the world around us or to rage against the fact that the nation is coming apart at the seams in our opinion or, or lament the fact that, hey, when I was a kid, it seemed so much better or any of that. He just says, live peaceably, live lovingly, and live righteously as you wait for Jesus to return, as you navigate a hostile world. And so the question I want to ask us then as we close, as you you think about this, in what area of your life do you need to honor Jesus more faithfully? Maybe it is for you that you, you've gotten really twisted up about, about politics and the, and the government. And so you just, even internally, you find yourself constantly chafing against who our leaders are at the present time or who they might be come next January or all the taxes you have to pay or the laws that you have to follow. And so there's something in your heart that is constantly rebelling against the authorities that God has put in place. Maybe it isn't even specifically governmental authority. Maybe it's just your boss. And so you find yourself chafing. And so maybe you need to repent of that and ask for a submissive heart. Maybe it is, like many of us, you've gotten so busy, you you ignore the needs of your neighbors. Or you look down on the needs of your neighbors and fail to step in and meet them where you can And maybe there's somebody you can think of even now that that needs a listening ear or a resource you can provide. And you know you need to step toward that person in love as a reflection of Jesus Christ. Maybe somebody in your workplace or at school or in your neighborhood that even you find difficult. But maybe they're difficult because they're hurting and they need Jesus. Jesus. And so maybe you need to take a moment and say, God, give me a heart of love for my neighbor. Or maybe it is you know that with your body and with your time, you've not been living righteously. And so you need a moment of repentance. Say, God, I have used my body and my mind and my eyes in ways that don't please you. 
and I need your forgiveness, and I need your help. So what I want to do as we close then is just take a moment or two of quiet before the Lord and ask this question. And whatever answer the Spirit impresses on your heart then, you say, God, forgive me and help me in the days and the weeks ahead to honor you faithfully. Let's take a moment quietly. God, I, I know your spirit is at work in our hearts and in our lives. I know even now you are working to peel back the layers of our pride and reveal to us areas of sin and disobedience that need work in our lives. So, Father, we pray we would be open-hearted and submissive to whatever you're doing. We want to reflect Jesus not in order to earn your approval, but because you've lavished it upon us graciously and freely in Jesus. Father, I pray first for anybody who doesn't know Jesus in the room this morning, who hasn't received the free gift of eternal life, that your spirit would impress on their hearts right now the need to trust in you and receive for free the forgiveness of sins that comes because of Christ's death and resurrection. Father, for those who know Jesus, I pray we would honor him with our minds, with our hearts, with our responses to our authorities, our responses to our neighbors. Let us be faithful men and women who represent your kingdom well while living right now in the kingdom of this world. Lord, we look forward to the day when the kingdoms of this world will give way the kingdom of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray all of these things.